This content was produced by the Chitlin Circuit Studios in Oak Park, Michigan. Find more information on Instagram at the Chitlin Circuit. Welcome, family, again to an episode of Next Narrative 313. I am Phaedra. What up? I'm Dwayne Barnes. I'm Patrice. Sorry about that. I'm rich. <laughs> Stock tips rich. Okay. <laughs> Big money rich, okay? Right. Rich dollars over here, ladies and gentlemen. Right. <laughs> um, tonight we are coming together for another episode to discuss everything from college debt relief and stimulus packaging to LeBron the King James. And without further ado, I'm going to open up the conversation for my brothers and sister to Get into it, because as college-educated people, I think we all have a loan or two that we would like for... Um, all our, of them. Our, all of them, okay? Leave all of them. Penny. Get rid of all of them. Um, but as we all know, the United States government, government is considering rolling out a new college debt relief plan, as well as some stimulus funding for its citizens. So we really wanted to bring that to the table today so that we all could discuss what that next narrative looks like for the Black community. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll take my first spin at it. So I think, you know, it's such an interesting time because, um, you know, during the was it winter and the, in the, in the fall or the, or the spring, um, we were in, you know, a 2020 presidential nomination. So it was a whole bunch of people talking about all the stuff that they would do from, you know, giving people a thousand dollars to, you know, removing all debt, college free, all these things. Uh, fast forward to now when the Democrats have won, now you have all this stuff kind of on the table that needs to be resolved. So when you think about the next round of stimulus that's coming from um, a Congress that has, you know, a, a Democratic majority in the House, um, but in a Republican majority in the Senate, um, it's some fine lines to walk. And as you've even seen through kind of the negotiations around the most recent stimulus and uh, in, in coronavirus package kind of down a couple hundred million from what it was, um, this this debt and stimulus thing is kind of interesting because, you know, there's, there's sayings or, or there's research out there on both sides that says, one, Canceling debt will kill our economy. And another one, you know, kind of saying, you know, uh, uh, putting those uh, measures in place can help the economy and help a whole generation and allow for so many opportunities for people to own homes and start businesses and just kind of all this stuff. Um, so as we think about it, there's been a couple plans rolled out. One was a $10,000 um, relief, which is what's up. You know, hey, I, hey, I take it. Um, and then there were some that kind of went further. Republicans kind of ain't playing that. And even some in the, in the Democratic Party don't even want to see it that way. So what's our kind of look at just, you know, the, the cancellation as in and of itself and in the political climate? It went from 50 to 10,000 real quick, didn't quick. it? So quick. <laughs> any, other <situation, laughs> any other situation where it goes from 50,000 to 10,000, it's going to be a big, uh, a big issue. Um, I'll be happy for the 10, you know, I'll be happy for the 10, but the, the 50 really was a game changer. Um, I think for myself. Um, so yeah. Um, I, I, I'm curious how he would even get the 10 through if we don't handle our business in Georgia though. Hmm. Well, I think that it's important for us to talk about why I went from 50 to 10. So one thing that most people don't consider is that if, Correction, as a creditor, if you forgive or cancel debt, the amount that's been wiped from your credit report or the amount that's been wiped must be included in gross income and subject to taxes. So if you said, I'm not going to collect this money, then you have to pay taxes on that money anyway. Creditors said, no, thank you, because you have to keep, keep in mind that all of us don't have regular fed loans. Some people have... Um, big bank loans, private institutions, things of that nature. And if you funded your education like that and you got 200000 250000 if you went out of state, your creditors aren't trying to take that hit on you and the other 30,000 kids who they also guarantee loans for. You know what? And I, I think that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to spin it to Patrice before I jump back in on it. Uh, I don't want to hog the mic, but I definitely I want to I talk to that too. Listen, get rid of all of it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I guess I'm not being as objective because I would love for them to get rid of all of it. Okay. Um, I, I, I do think that 
because the way people get into college debt, most of the folks that are that are that are collecting debt are folks who it was a struggle to afford college, um, and the access to college was not readily. It wasn't affordable. You had, you know, so, so I'm thinking about the root of why we've obtained so much college debt in the first place, and because of the root to that. Um, often is the inequities across the board, it seems fair that you would eliminate those barriers because the American dream is go to college, go into entrepreneurship or get your education so that you can provide the home, you know, have the picket fence, like all of these things that are supposed to be um, connect. Um, y'all, you know, Prince, I'm at home now. So he just, uh, um, so all of those things are supposed to be connected to a college education, right? And now I think we've gotten wiser to say you don't necessarily have to have a college education to be an entrepreneur and to pursue those certain things. But I, I'm, I'm an educator, so I believe in going to college and getting that experience and obtaining a degree because there's more to it than just the college degree. However, we know that the access to obtaining that degree is elusive, right? Primarily from a financial standpoint. So my concern is even after you've gotten the degree, you still can't adequately obtain the American dream because your debt to income ratio for a mortgage, like there are so many other barriers, even after you've gotten the degree, our former president himself said he was still paying off college debt. And he's the president of the United States of America at that time, right? So my dog agrees with me. So, <laughs> so, I, so I think that it is, especially in this moment when you've got COVID, you for sure should be making a way for people to le- eliminate this debt. And for some of us, 10000 ain't going to do nothing. And that's facts. And, and, and I think I agree with everything everybody said so far. And I think that there's, you know, when we think about it from a policy perspective or, or just from kind of a, 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 a government perspective. I think there's kind of several ways we could kind of see it. So um, what if there were ways to kind of provide incentives on the back end for those firms that are going to lose, like the same way we, we provide subsidies for economic development and all that other stuff. So, I mean, there's a way to do it. I also believe there's a way to do it tax-wise, kind of similar to how they did the tax um, overhaul in uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, but then I also think, uh, what if there was a way um, to kind of tie it to something, to say, okay, well, there will be X amount of forgiveness um, for whatever you do. What if it's community service hours? What if it's tutoring? What if it's teaching? What if it's, you know, whatever we can kind of tie it to? What if, you know, I, I would imagine tying it to like a public jobs program. Like there's a way that you can get this stuff, you know, taken care of uh, up into a limit because you're not, they don't want to give us anything. What if there's a way to say, okay, we're, we're willing to work for it. We're willing to not only pay it, but we're also willing to do something else. Um, that can help on the back end. So I, I think that we can think of a lot of creative ways to kind of get that done. Um, and I would love to hear what we got to say about it before we move on to the next topic. Um, I actually want to clarify something that I said earlier. So for the loan forgiveness, the tax assessment, the tax fees are not passed along to the creditor. They're passed along to the borrower. So to make that clear, okay. if I Phaedra have $10,000 in loan forgiveness or in loans forgiven to me by a creditor, I then have to pay the tax to the IRS for that forgiveness. Right now, there's no precedent for that, but when it comes to student loan debt, however, I can see there being an argument being made. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to address to your point, Dwayne, you relieving the debt for me does not free, like ideally it should free, if I'm making that payment, if I made the decision to not go into further debt and just ignore that bill, you canceling my debt does not free up any more liquid income for me to pay off other things, for me to go and get a mortgage. Realistically, it just gets rid of $10,000. So what, that's going to reduce my loan payment, my student loan payment by, what, $15 a month? Right. Um, <laughs> I still have, and if you live in Michigan, I still have astronomically high car insurance. Right. I got a high car note. Um, Lord willing, I got a mortgage, even though the city is like something along the lines of 60% renter. Currently, um, all of those things in my, I think we can get a little bit more creative. If we're going to say, take the concession of $10,000. We need to be realistic about what that looks like and if it's going to make a true difference. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, 
when you said that the borrowers would be taxed, the borrowers would be taxed instead, I, in my head, I said deal. Like, I just, I yelled it out in my head. Like, I'll take that in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, if we've sent a man to the moon, I'm just going to come from a simple angle <laughs> or, or, or view. If we put somebody on the moon, we could figure out this, this to work for everybody. Um, initially, when you said that phase, I was thinking, like, I really don't care what the creditors, you know, what their tax bill is because the government is cutting the check. Let them figure it out. They still got to pay taxes anyway. They'll get paid um, quicker. But I, my, my, lo- my student loans, they don't feel like the biggest ball and chain, but it does feel like a, a burden that I carry around, right? Um, and even knowing that I, if I can reduce it by 10000 which I, again, I, I want the fifty that they initially pitched or whatever. Um, they are it's already starting. Um, but even being able to reduce it by, by 10000 I you know, I would be incredibly happy about that um, if we could get that. But, I, again, I mean, we want to, we need to talk about Georgia to see what we really can get to as well if we're gonna if, if we're gonna land on that ten thousand or if it's gonna be more. Um, we we've seen the government pull out money and and and, and spend it on other things, um, you know. So they need to make it happen and figure out a way. I'm with you. I want to jump in there because we're talking about this situation, but this is what I think legislators and people who are supposed to be public service, this is the conversation they should be having. Like it, it really should not be a debate. Like this is what the average American is, is one of the, the key issues that the average American struggles with is college debt. Right. So why is it that it's such, it's such a debate. It's such an issue when, especially when you're in this pivotal moment of crisis where you're in this situation where you're having Great Depression era issues, to alleviate those things, it seems like this should be a simple issue. And this should be the conversation that our legislators are talking about. But they've really been honing in on issues that are not necessarily relevant. I'll give it to you on the on the weed. But, <laughs> but, I, but I think that the, the, the central issues, they're not really focusing on. And I still think that $10,000 is a slap in the face. So I think we, number one, eliminate the debt. But then number two, you also need to address how are you going to eliminate the debt for future generations, right? So we've got this astronomical debt now, but we've got a generation of kids who are also trying to go to college. And so why isn't there a Detroit promise for multiple communities across the state of Michigan, multiple communities across the country, where we were saying that college access in education is a key success, but then we're still not pro- providing the the, uh, the pathway to do it in a cost-effective manner. I agree 100%. And I think that um, uh, the final word I'll, I'll say on it is this. I think that there, um, I think, I'm, I'm optimistic in the future about what uh, this looks like. I think um, student loans will be forgiven. I think that what we saw this summer is that there's a far left leaning of the Democratic Party um, that's just now getting into kind of their bag. And over our lifetimes, this is an issue for millennials. This is an issue for our generation. So as we continue to move that forward, um, this issue will be you know ratified. I, I just have confidence that, that that's going to happen because Think about the percentage of people in this generation that has that on their shoulders. Um, so, I, so I'm optimistic about it in the future. And I think it kind of leads us to kind of what the next kind of topic is around. Okay, we talked about student loans and stimulus and what that means. Um, it was a historic um, uh, piece of, of voting in the House earlier this week where the House um, passed a, a, a marijuana legislation that decriminalized it and offered um, expungement and restorative justice aspects to it as well, which was something that I didn't see coming. Um, unfortunately, it's not looking like the Senate is even gonna look at it, but just for what it is, I think it was a victory that, you know, when you get, you know, democratic or when you get political power and they have it in the um, in the house to be able to say, this is what we would do if we had the Senate, this is what we would do if we had the White House, this is the kind of stuff we wanna do. Um, I think that that is um, exceptional. Um, but I also think it was kind of mistimed with everything else is going on, but I think it was kind of tea leaves into what a Georgia could look like or what it looks like when you have, you know, a majority power in, in, in those chambers. Uh, any takes on it? And, and let's talk about it. Spin it. 
Oh, I got some questions. I got, I got a question for you. Um, you said the Senate isn't going to look at yeah, it. Yeah, that's what uh, Senate leadership because that, that's not that's not even a part of they what they want to do. So yeah, Mitch McConnell was like, yeah, they, they wouldn't. Look, so is it, it? It can't be looked um, at after the Senate switches next year if if we're in. You know, what I'm saying if, um, if, if, if I if I know this right, new session you start from zero and build. Um, every every legislative session you start over, oh, okay, gotcha. uh, typically. So, but gotcha. what's uh, what's unique about it is um, a lot outside of maybe a couple a couple of seats. I think we're lost in the house. A lot of those people are going to be right back, um, and you can you know move through things because you moved through them before. But yeah, so it's going to be interesting. I'm glad they did it, and and I hope that answered the question. So let, let's talk about it more, yeah. and me not do that part. You'll get that excited. <laughs> So I think one of the biggest things that I enjoyed about seeing the legislation was the decriminalization of nonviolent marijuana crimes. Um, we've all heard the story of whether it's your homeboy, your cousin, or your friend getting pulled over for a dime bag of weed and then having to spend a, any, any time is a significant amount of time in incarceration as a result of that, having to deal with a record. And moving forward with those things, my my bigger issue is now, okay, so I, I feel like, again, this is where we reach that, that issue of the emperor circus because I still need some coronavirus money. I don't know what y'all thought this was, but the weed legislation is nice, but House, y'all knew that it wasn't going to be passed by the Senate when you brought it up. And more importantly, what is the longevity behind legislation like this? Because you still have disparate impact happening when it comes to employment and employers still being able to drug test because even if I let you out of jail or if I scrub your record, if the person who's going to give you a job is going to make you drop on a regular basis, what is what what resolution did I provide to you then? Um, secondly, I really want to just bring some light to the fact that you letting people like this legisl legislation where you are decriminalizing nonviolent marijuana-related crimes, y'all can't get them people their time back. Y'all can't get them people their lives back, the, the gaps that have existed within, like, who's the breadwinner in household or just, like, th their freedom. Like, we are now going to recognize that this non-threatening non drug that has a ton of health benefits, and I'm not going to play like weed is just like a, a panacea, but... Now that it's taxable, now that we figured out a way to monetize it, now that we figured out a way to generate revenue from literally from the growing, from the actual cross-pollination of plants to replication of merch and things of that nature, now all of a sudden, oh, okay, we can afford to let people out of jail because we were getting paid off of them too. That's how we were making money off of weed in the beginning. And the game has changed. We diversified. And I, I just, I feel like that was cute, House of Representatives, but... What's next? I I um <clears throat> I agree. <clears throat> Even with your first point about the stimulus, we're getting played about played on that right now too. Um, I think the the White House just responded with the bill that's like a third of the amount of benefits that Congress turned in, or something like that. I think it, it, or a fourth or something like that. So I agree with that. Um, I wasn't excited about the vote outside of those convictions being turned around. I think it is some value there, but that's the only value that I, I personally see. I'm someone who I've been affected, um, you know, by a marijuana conviction. Um, I'm not necessarily excited about this, uh, about the bill. I kind of, I think it's one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm going to be a hundred in my mind. I was like, well, they got, they all the people that were against, legalizing marijuana, they got time to put their ducks in a row to take advantage of it, including the politicians that are voting on it, whether they're setting up their retirement plans or whatever. So um, the only thing that, that that excited me was to see some of those convictions turned around. And I, I've, I've seen people who have had marijuana convictions and they came out of prison. And the way that they've that they've just kind of blown up in a good way in other industries. Um, it's inspiring, but it's at, at this point for them, it's nothing but a, 
it's nothing but a, I don't even know what to describe it as, a, a token, you know, getting that expungement because they figured out a way despite that conviction. But then there's a lot of people who, you know what I mean? They haven't, like Faye just said, their life has been so much harder uh, because of that. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that excited about it. And it's probably more, the only excitement is about the convictions and, um, they even talked about the money that would be saved uh, by legalizing it, that would be generated, and, and the amount of money which that they would uh, be able to cut from the from the prison spending budget, which it was like $1 billion. I think that's kind of low. Somebody's lying somewhere. Um, but, yeah, so that, that's where my excitement was. You going to get on it, good doctor? I think Phaedra raises a really valid point on what the heck is y'all doing when, yes, this is a very important issue and it's definitely an important issue to our community, but Corona is like a hurricane that has returned and landed and people have not been given the support that they need. Um, It's almost, and, you know, could this be a side effect of a lame duck season, right? But it's, it, then that says a lot that you chose to put this at this time, something that is very important to the African-American community. You chose to do it in your lame duck season, and you knew it wasn't going to pass the Senate. So um, versus looking at the priority, which right now is COVID relief, overwhelming is COVID relief. Michigan is shut back down. You got San Francisco shut. I mean, people like all over the place, we're back into a quarantine space and people are underestimating the impact on folks' mental capacity, mental health in this season. I'm going to be quiet now because, yeah. Yeah. All the issues raised, I think, shows uh, the complexity of, of, I think, what they were trying to do. Um, again, what I, what I think is most interesting about it is no, it can't give you a time back and that sucks. Um, no, it can't change, you know, employer, um, uh, 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 procedure on how they drug test. So all that stuff is true. So what are you really doing? Um, you know, what I would hope is that, um, you know, once the, um, industry is decriminalized and you can do business across 50 States, what I would love to see is. Now there can be government programs the same way they are for other, you know, business opportunities and monies kind of dedicated to those communities that can maybe help in, you know, startup costs that can help, you know, build some of this stuff. That's the only thing you can kind of hope out of it. Um, But I think that's something that we'll we'll definitely have to keep our eye on. I know in the state of Michigan and even in the city of Detroit, the waters are getting thick. I just read an article in, um, in, uh, was it D business that, uh, you know, the industry is booming over COVID. It was, you know, profits were up, I think over like 200%. So people are eating and we definitely want to be, you know, um, in that conversation, you know, when the market, you know, opens. Um, I think, you know, a lot of this talk around, you know, what the federal government is doing um, and, and, you know, kind of where their position is kind of moving us into another conversation around um, uh, President-elect Joe Biden and his cabinet picks. We've seen a lot of interesting picks from, uh, you know, if you want to, you know, follow the, the TV kind of wording, the, the diversity picks, and then his loyalist kind of thing, um, I'm under the the, uh, the the idea of that. You know, when you bring a very interesting mix of people by everything you can label them as, I think that the end product is always going to be better that way. Um, I think there's so much that this administration is going to have to kind of deal with. I'm glad they got those smart minds there, and a lot of people who we haven't seen before you know, uh, defense secretaries and, 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 and treasury secretaries and all this other stuff that we got going. So what, what do you guys take on it um, specifically and just kind of generally, you know, as, as kind of um, how it goes, you know, seeing more people at the table that look a lot of different ways that's going to be governing this country? Um, I'm excited about it. I feel like President-elect Joe Biden has filled 11 seats so far. And out of those 11 seats, five of them have been women, one being a black woman. Um, in particular, um, soon to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, who is also my soror, a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Um, 
she will be assuming her seat. And then there's also a black man who will be serving as defense secretary. So I feel like he's done a very good job in terms of one vetting because there are out of the five remaining positions that he needs to appoint for. He's also considering an additional three black women amongst those five positions. I feel comfortable. However, what I want to be sure of is that these people are able to do their jobs within this role. And one of the things that we do need to keep in mind is um, the United States government is a series of checks and balances. And while the executive branch is the face or the, um, the face of our country, you still have a judiciary and legislative branch who are responsible for implementing and interpreting all of the laws or things that they come up with. It'll be amazing for us to be able to restore our, our good name within the um, international arena. I feel like our secretary of state is a sound young man with a sound man with a um, very well-respected international um, reputation. And then I also feel like our United Nations representative who happens to be a woman has done a very good job of branding herself within the international arena. And that's my biggest, my biggest concern. As we look at these positions, we need to get the main stage, the United, the, the world to respect us again, because we spent four years being subjected to Trump's um, Twitter tragedies. And in order for us to move forward as a country to be respected, um, both as a, a world power again, because let's not play like China and Russia ain't looking at us like mince meat right now. He needs to be very clear that when, like, when he is finally in, inaugurated, this team hits the ground running. Like, whatever the conversations are happening right now, there ain't no Christmas break, ain't no MLK holiday, ain't no New Year. You started work today. I know we are not getting sworn in until January, but the meeting starts today. And as long as that is at the forefront of their mind, I think that we can climb out of this. It's going to be a rough climb, but the first two years, I think we can make it. Uh, you, you said everything. Um, you said everything. And... Um, what it made me think about is that Joe Biden is doing everything so far. It's not been a long time since, you know what I'm saying, since he's been elected, but he's moving at a good pace of doing what he said he would do up to this point, even in the picks and the diversity in the picks that, that he's, that he's done it. Um, and I feel like he's done it in a way that I get sick of like noise, like just like the, all the noise that Trump creates, I just get sick of it because I got a lot of enough things to think about, right? But I think that he's done it in a in a very smooth way, where it's not really kicking up too much dust. It's like this is what's happening. Is is there's no negatives that we see um, yet? There's there's not an argument about these picks. Um, so I, I I appreciate the him doing everything that he said he he would do and uh, up to this point and doing it in a in a smooth way, despite all of the other nonsense from the other side. You know, uh, I, I love the Twitter tragedies comment, Phaedra. I think we need to put that on a, uh, something when he goes out the door is close, close out your Twitter tra tragedies. Um, but I, um, I really like, I strongly like the moves that Biden is making right now. I think we were expecting for him to pick darlings of the party, right? Those up-and-coming folks that were on the, the Democratic stage with him early that, you know, um, Buttigieg and, and all of those guys that even Elizabeth Warren, all those folks that we were just like, we just knew they were going to have some cabinet seats and I can appreciate that I think he wasn't, um, he hasn't moved from an emotional standpoint, but he's been really, in a good way, very calculating. And to Phaedra's point, picking people that have been vetted, that, that have strong track record, track records. And quite honestly, that's what you should expect from a president. Um, I think that we, we, you know, we, we were, we've had nepotism for the last four years. And so when you get someone who's actually looking at, I need the best of the best of the best, and rightfully so, because you're right, we can't have Christmas break, we can't have MLK holiday, because you are facing so many economic, the economic crisis, the health crisis, and even with the COVID vaccine looming, we all know now 
the history of black folks and 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 health and and health administrations and dare I say the CD experiment. I'm looking at they gave it to a to an elderly woman in London yesterday, I think. And I'm waiting to see if she's gonna pop up like with any issues, you know. Uh, so, so I say that to say that he's going to, the crisis is looming. You, I, I honestly can imagine him walking into the White House and it looks a mess. Like it symbolically will be in a mess and everything else is symbolically in a, a mess, right? And so when you have probably the worst transition in the history of the country, because you cannot, we already know that your current president is still losing battles in the courtroom, like, so he's, you know, like, so so he should be trying to help transition power, but you are sending, you know, people in Michigan to, 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 to argue why you thought this was the most fraudulent election in the history of the world, which is not true, right? So I think that I can appreciate that Biden seems to be level-headed, and I love the fact that these picks are extremely diverse, when you see these images of, of, of a whole cabinet, I mean, you've got women, you've got all types of minorities at the table. It looks beautiful. And if we've learned anything about diversity and inclusion is, yes, symbolically it's good to have, but it, it's good business. It is. That's why you have seen, I think right now, probably the most sought after job is diversity and equity folks. It is a good, it's it's a good business strategy. It works in the bottom line. And I think he's moving in that direction. Okay, there we go. Yeah, I think um, I, I agree with everything everybody said. I think there's one thing I'm interested in seeing is that, or, or one thing I think will be interesting about his administration, especially early, is, um, you know, having to sure up um, our foreign kind of relations, just as much as we have to, you know, deal with stuff at home. So their their plates will be very very full. And one thing I will say is, you know, so through the two Obama terms, the one Trump term, and then back, you know, to the to the incoming Biden term, um, the Democrats never really had a tough time governing uh, when they get the ball. Um, so you know, I don't expect anything less. I think one thing that people are going to have to temper um, are the expectations around what a Biden administration is going to look like. Um, I think it's going to be very kind of um, tried and true Democrat, where a lot of the issues for those who aren't in that main kind of group are going to fall. Um, and, and I think that's just kind of how it's going to go. But it will be, you know, a wider kind of net for progress. Um, and as we reach the midway point, uh, I want us to take a quick breath um, and then we can move on to our next topic. So we talked to national. We, you know, we, we hit that hard. Um, let's bring it back home to the city for a minute. Um, we know 2021. Um, is going to be a big year in the city of Detroit. Um, let's see, how can I how can I put this into focus? Over the past eight years, I think uh, 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 Duggan has been in office that long. Um, we've seen um, a revitalization of downtown and midtown. Um, we've seen this kind of new Detroit, old Detroit. Um, those of us who've been fortunate enough to move in the new Detroit era have been doing so and kind of making our way through. Um, our cousins, aunties, uh, grandmothers may not have been as much, um, which sucks, and we got to talk about that. Um, but we're going to see, you know, was it two of the city council seats up? Uh, the mayor's uh, seat is up. Um, I believe there's a couple, uh, or maybe all of the uh, school board seats are up as well. Um, so we have the elections that really matter. We just did the Biden and the Trump thing, but the ones that really affect or that equally affect us um, are on the table. Let's talk about it. We've heard some names. We heard some names pulled back. Um, there's some things in play and some things we can't talk about. Um, so, you know, what, what's our take on it that we can talk about here and uh, kind of put some context to it? Uh, this is a passion project of mine. So shameless plug. I had too much time during quarantine and I created a very out, lengthy document. Excel document. <laughs> which highlighted the seats, the election type, the next election cycle, and the filing window for all of the um, elections that you could run for as a resident of the city of Detroit. Now, hopefully at some point we can bring this to a national scale, but this is tired. With that in mind, um, as Dwayne mentioned, we have two at-large city council seats opening up 
um, this year. So as of August 3rd, 2021, you will be voting for your next two at-large Detroit City Council members, the Detroit City Mayor is up for election as well, as well as the Detroit City Clerk. So for those of us who are not familiar with what that process, process looks like, in order to run for those positions, you have to file um, within a certain filing window. The filing window opens March 20th of next year. And one of the things that I brought to the group is the fact that we have not had any conversations about this. Like, and I understand that coronavirus is happening, but one of what we cannot just have for a, a city like Detroit is like, oh, okay, well, we're just not going to have an election. We're just going to keep everybody in the same job and until coronavirus goes away and then we'll see what happens then. Um, I, I have some pushback to that because I, while I, I do think there have been some advancements made within our, our local and city government, I do think that there's still been uh, some gaps that have been missed. One of the largest things that comes into question is my, my daughter was a student in Detroit Public Schools, and I get that that's not a municipality issue, but for the school board to not have ensured 10 years ago that every kid that was enrolled in the district had access to internet and access to a quality electronic device. And now here we are, where districts like Birmingham and districts like Bloomfield, the kids that had a MacBook, an iPad, and a lab set that they get to claim when they like they t- take with them when they graduate from school. To know that these children not only did not have access to school as a result of coronavirus, but then turned around and are now logistically supposed to be spending six to eight hours on the screen, and they're doing it from a cell phone because there's no device in the home or there's no Wi-Fi in the home. I think that I say all of that to say, as you consider the grand stage of the United States president and things of that nature, understand that the real change happens at your local um, legislative and executive levels. So that is your mayor, that is your um, Detroit City Council, because they are responsible for creating the city ordinances. And then your local judiciary is your district court. So 36 district court is responsible for the fees that we are assigned when you get a parking ticket in the city. The fees that you get hit with if you happen to be caught with some marijuana in the city by a DPD officer. Uh, well, not anymore, but in the past. Um, or if you just got too much garbage in your backyard, you can get a ticket from that. The 36th District Court is what enforces those fees. They come back and interpret them. One of the things that I pose now is that we got some old guards currently in office and I'm tired of them. I can say that. I'm tired of them, and I feel like they're not doing enough. Uh, and I get it. They've been in position for quite some time. However, that's not an excuse. I feel like if you need to be, if you need some further guidance or some insight about how to be ingenuitive or how to address these changes, then cool. But I don't think that there's even a request to get that knowledge now, and that's my issue. And for that, everybody on notice. Like we said, Gary Peters, you on notice and wherever you at, and the rest of y'all who I'm not going to name because I might see y'all on the streets, y'all don't notice too. Hey, real talk. And let me jump in real quick, and I, I, I'll, I'll hand it off. Um, those two seats are at large. If we've seen how Detroit has been changing in the last couple years, um, those seats are, 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 are pork for somebody that's really looking to make a move. And we haven't seen our city council look um, a different way than we have in a while for a while. Um, but those two seats will look um, very interesting um, to people who may have different values, a different skin color, a different everything than we have that we've seen there. So I think, you know, the same kind of organizing that we did this summer still got to be the same kind of thing, you know, we do to make sure that, um, you know, the fight that we're having is a fight among principles um, that govern us, not from somebody from the outside. That's all I just want to say. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see who else is going to run uh, for uh, for for city council too. I haven't really heard anybody talking about running. Um, I definitely haven't heard anybody talking about running for mayor either. So I'm interested to see who's going to run. And you said the city clerk uh, seat is up as well. Yeah, that's. I remember that's Garland gave her a run a couple years ago. Yeah, and, and I think that's the best example of, of how hard it is to run for, 
um, one of those those spots in the city because I thought he ran a <clears throat> a great race and I I, I didn't I was surprised yeah. that it was close. Um, I know he raised a ton of money, and you know, I mean, happen, and so. that, that takes us to that other conversation <laughs> that I think we can start, um, but we don't want to get too deep into is you know, um, even we saw over the last you know six years of elections, young people running. Um, and the establishment saying, get the book out the way. It ain't your turn. You know how you know how we can be in the city. So I think that that's another conversation. He ran a great race, um, used technology, raised money, um, but it just wasn't enough for some of the the kind of the old guard. And that same old guard is still holding on um, to these seats and, and, and to this uh, mayoral seat too. So, I mean, there's a lot of kind of intra um, Detroit issues that we can talk about that you kind of raised right there. But I, I want to make sure I, I, I hand it off as well. I, I got one quick question, just an opinion for everybody, because um, I, I remember one of the issues with Garland not winning is probably um, just reaching some of the older folk who, you know, rank, name recognition. But do you think that our city is more digital than it was back when he ran? Um, Yikes. Well, I'm going to say no. Uh, but I'm really interested to hear Patrice, considering that she is our resident agent on local municipality elections. We got a whole mayor on our on our call today. Yes, yes, ma'am. I, you know, I think. Thank you, Phaedra. I, I think that when Dwayne said when he talked about the old guard, the old guard can get you killed. <laughs> because straight up, because for me as a as a so for me as a twenty three year old running for office, I had a I had a great support system, and. When I when I got the seat, the folks around me had been on council for 15 years. They had been there for a long time, but because we 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 were forced to operate like a community and not like um, politicians, because we were in such a tight seat in such a tight world. One with emergency financial management, we had to make sure we kept the city out of debt. We had to make sure our water filtration uh, system stayed ours. So when we were up against so many situations, you know, our, our closed sessions were, we weren't slinging mud at each other. We were trying to really figure it out. So we earned the reputation of, of being one of the best councils because you had a younger person, i.e. me, you had the old guard and we worked together, right? We also had a cutting edge city manager at the time. So it, it fit for us to be, at that time, one of the only black cities to not be taken over by the state, right? Um, so I think that the old guard has to deal with their, can I say, pride, um, and teach other folks how to start leading. And honestly, if they can look at it as a legacy standpoint, what is required is in order for us to keep the momentum, you have got to teach the other folks how to how to handle the baton, right? You just have to. And so for me, I had people who were like, here, here it is. Here's how it works. Here's what you need to focus on. And I had my own opinions and I, and I brought this new way of thinking, but I also was respectful to that older guard. And I think we've got to begin to start bridging that gap. And I don't know where that is in Detroit. You know what I'm saying? I don't know where the folks are willing to say, let me teach you. And then young folks being able to say, let me listen. You know, it's like um, uh, Naomi and Ruth from a biblical standpoint. I'm going to sit at your feet and teach me how to get this dude, basically, was, was how she taught her the game, you know. And we need to see people in this era do that. Otherwise, you lose so much. I agree 100%. And I think that that is a part of um, some of the just the, the generational kind of um, intragenerational issues that are going on. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's going to be a pull. Um, but that's also I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, as as time continues to move forward, um, leaders will continue to emerge. And you do I mean, you do have some younger council members right now. Right. Um, who I do. I do think are community oriented, who have a community focus. And who has presented? Phaedra is, is giving us the side eye. Um, One that I think might be running for mayor. We're gonna hear soon, maybe. Yeah, yep, I, I agree. And, and so it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. And we, we it's gonna be interesting. That's all I can say. And and but you also in that seat, you gotta have somebody that is skilled. So you gotta have somebody that's. 
I just want to push back on that and say, like, yes, to your point, not having a entering an arena like Detroit's government and not having a, a strong team, like you can't hold the mayoral seat if your if city council not really on your team. Because if city council had sense from a collective bargaining standpoint, and with the city of Detroit being one of the strongest union cities in this in the country. I find it very hard that we don't have this concept as strongly as we should. When we came out of emergency management, we came out of emergency management with the understanding that we had to maintain a balanced budget or that we were going to, we were going to get our manager back. From a city council standpoint, there are a ton of things that each of the residents from each of the districts want that everybody can't get. However, we can come together as a collective bargaining unit and say, if we got a $2.4 billion budget, District 6 needs literacy buses, District 2 needs um, some schools to be rehabbed, we'll come together and get all of those things together, and then we, we get that budget to the mayor and dare him to send it back. Because if he sends it back or denies the budget or vetoes the budget, that's a trigger for um, emergency management to, re to start up again. My issue with that is I don't feel like our city council operates in unison. I feel like in open sessions, there are mudslinging sessions, which is why the mayor is able to do what he wants to, which is why downtown and midtown look like they do, but you could drive down grass shit past 75, and it looks like it does. The, the hole still very much exists in southwest Detroit, even though Raquel Castaneda is doing a, an amazing job with the resources she be, she's being provided. And then in terms of the old guard, I believe, yes, there's some wisdom to be learned. However, with the parable that you shared, Patrice, Ruth was willing. Ruth was eager to say, all right, Naomi, let me get you together, sis. I understand that you don't have all of the tools. I don't see that happening. Like, if we remember a few, what was that, the last mayoral election, you had probably about three or four um, candidates who were under the age of 30 running for mayor. And at no point did anybody pull them aside, okay, well, you need to come talk to the Michigan Democratic Party because really getting an endorsement for them is how you get to where you need to be. Or in addition to you talking to the Michigan Democratic Party, you still have to realize that Detroit is old money. So you need to hit up Fellowship. You need to hit up Greater Grace, Second Ebenezer, um, First Presbyterian, where all of these, large, these avid voters who, in addition to them being avid voters, are the people who their villages go to to say, who should we be voting for? That system has not been passed down. That knowledge has not been passed down. And I don't think we're getting to a place where we can change that old guard without there being some stumbling because there, we haven't done enough to preserve that knowledge. So when you do change, though, when you do transition, that leadership, they stumble. And you see that with the young members of city council now. There was a bunch of hype around you being young and it being fresh new blood, but the reality is you don't know what you're doing. So you bump in your head. And you don't have a good team behind you. Your team just as young and fresh as you are, then they ain't got no good sense. So as we as we start to consider what talent should look like, I'm looking at Detroit Young Professionals because what are y'all not what are y'all doing? But Detroit Young Professionals, New Leaders Council, you have these um, nonpartisan political views where there are individuals who have political aspirations among your ranks. How are you curating them, or how are you using your platform to make sure that we have access or information? To candidates who make sense for us man <laughs> real talk uh, I, I love what i'm hearing any other takes before we move on to the next we got about 12 minutes so um yeah i would say and this is such a pivotal time for detroit it's, it's going to be because you've got whatever stuff duggan has cooked up you 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 don't want you want to ensure that the resources are given to every aspect of in every corner of Detroit. And I fear that I don't know if his aim is really in that is that that's his real his real intention. But I think in order for you to sustain what you just built, right, you're coming out of a deficit, you're getting out of emergency management. Well, now you also got a, a, a depression happening. Now you've got COVID happening now. 
So a lot of the restaurants that opened up in your boom are, are going to close its doors. You already messed up the the fashion fashion avenue with with that construction project. So they're being hit hard. So how do you sustain what you built if you can't sustain the educational system to to breed human capital, and then you're not transitioning knowledge, you're transitioning wealth to the to and keeping it in that same community, but you're at this critical, critical conjecture where you really do have to have strong leadership at, the, at that helm. And, and the leadership that is going to look out for the most vulnerable in the city. So absolutely. I think that's very well said. Um, so you know, we we'd winding down here, and I want to make sure we spend a couple moments on this topic here, um, though it, it deserves a show in and of itself. Um, and I would love to bring somebody in and really, really talk about this. Um, just this week, the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force, um, headed by Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, uh, released their interim report, um, kind of showcasing um, what they've done, the research that they've um, compiled, and some of the recommendations. Um, I won't go too deep into it. Um, I did uh, look at the executive summary and some of the recommendations. Um, this area is 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 a is an area that's very important to me. I think. Um, so I'll say this, and I'll just I'll, I'll leave it alone. I think that the um, I'm so glad that there is a task force. Um, I, I want to I would love to make sure I, I I hope that they're properly funded to do the work that they really need to do because I think they got it, they got it right in front saying we need to talk about kind of the factors that got us here, um, how we're gonna address the, 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 the issue of testing and all those things. And, and since we have, you know, the numbers have come down and our community went from being 40% of deaths um, to, to, to down to the level that, that's more commensurate with our number in the state. Um, but I also wonder um, about the legs of it. Now we know that it isn't just about who gets it, who goes to the hospital, who dies or come home. Um, there's a lot of longer term estimated uh, effects of coronavirus. And when you put that on top of already, you know, the health situation in a lot of urban communities, um, it's going to need a lot more than just, okay, this is what we did up front. Um, it's going to take um, a lot more than that. And I have, I'm working on a piece kind of around what some of those recommendations are, how they can be improved. Um, so I just want to pass it around and, and get everybody's take on uh, the coronavirus task force uh, interim report and or just the need for uh, whatever in that space. So I'll jump in. Um, I'll start by saying that the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities is a um, an organ, uh, a task force that was created by Governor Whitmer as a result of some executive an executive order. Um, all of the meetings are completely open to the public. So if you have questions, please feel free to participate. Um, and those meetings include everyone from U.S. Senators to Lieutenant Gar uh, Garland. Lieutenant Governor Garland, um, our Attorney General, and they discuss everything from access to digital literacy, health disparities, the amount of deaths per capita, um, per race, per gender. Um, I was happy to see that the governor took the time to create a task force for this and let me know that she was serious about making sure that our black city was a priority. Uh, and I understand that it's a state task force, but it's largely built around cities like Detroit, like Benton Harbor, like Flint, like Saginaw, where the population is very, um, very African-American. And the reality is we have, we have very specific conditions that happen as a result of growing up in poverty and being people of color, whether they be historic or current. Um, my only concern is I feel as though the task force, um, I felt like the report was very surface level, and I think that's because they couldn't really talk about some of the issues that um, actually address our most, how do I say this, are our most likely to be affected by COVID. Our, our low-wage worker, workers who can't afford childcare, who have to go to work and are exposed to a ton of people. Like, let's be realistic about the people who are working in drive through lines. Family Dollar has not closed. Dollar Tree has not closed. Walmart has not closed. Those individuals still have to go back to their families. What is this task force doing to really address those things? And I get it that the task force can't be a catch-all to address everything, and I hate to play devil's at I hate to be the, the squeaky wheel, but I really need us to address the fact that in the city of Detroit, there are 
over 60,000 residents who still don't have access to um, the internet or Wi-Fi, and out of those 60,000, another 45,000 don't have access to running water or electricity. How can you wash your hands? Like, which is literally one of the most basic things that they're telling us to protect ourselves from this virus. You can't do that when you don't have water in your home. Um, or how can you educate yourself about what the new requirements are or what the standards are moving forward when, one, that information is not being disseminated to you because you are not the people that they're building the system for, and then, two, you just don't have access to it. It's hard. Like, even if it, even if DTE is passing out free PPE, how are you getting there? How are you getting on the bus to get to the PPP location? I think we need to address this a little bit more granular, which means that, for me, in addition to a state task force, we need a task force in the city. Um, you need a task force for the county if you can't give me one for the city. I'm cool with that. Wayne County, where y'all at? Those are my 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 concerns about the, the report. I feel like, one, for it to be an interim report, y'all could have gave me the final one. I'd have been okay with waiting if it had had a little bit more meat to it, just being completely honest. Real talk? Yeah, I, I really don't have many thoughts about the report so far. I think it's a... a it's a to be continued. It's it, it's a uh, a lot to be you know. It's, it's a lot that, that that's left. Um, we'll, we'll see. I, with Garland sharing this though, right? Knowing how data driven he is, um, I, my expectations are high for it. So um, I, I'm looking forward to the next report because this one really didn't give us anything. You're right. I, I, I agree with what, what's been said. I, and I do want to highlight Phaedra's point that good kudos to Whitmer for taking that action. I think she's done a fantastic job this entire season doing with this piece. I think she's really done a good job. Um, and to make it a priority to have the task force was a step in the right direction. But I also agree with you all that they're going to have to find a way to one, look at how this is really happening on the ground to all the examples that Phaedra listed and to find actionable resources to address what's happening on the ground. Uh, absolutely. And I, I'll just put a final touch on it. I think Phaedra kind of, encapsulated the whole thing like this is while it's a conversation around coronavirus um it's a conversation about the factors that led to the fallout of coronavirus um so you know we talk about poverty you talk about education you talk about access all those things are, are, are into that so you know unless you're willing to fund all of that you just you do on that bull straight up um so uh it's our last topic of the night well one before i do that i want to say i want to give a shout out to the 2020 be me fellows for the city of detroit that uh came out um very proud to have you in the family i'm actually wearing i don't know if you can see this uh, the sweatshirt from one of the 2020 fellows calvin man from encourage me i'm young um do amazing work around suicide prevention etc um but i do want to take us on our last little topic and then take us to a little bit of overtime um you know, we got to have our little pop topic, our, our sports-related topic. So, you know, the NBA season um, just ended and is about to start again next week or two weeks from now. Um, and I'm an NBA guy. That's my that's one of my that's my sport. Um, and so we've seen, uh, you know, King James take the Lakers um, in the bubble last year, and they won a championship uh, this year. The uh, over the offseason, uh, he he resigned. Anthony Davis resigned, and a host of other players uh, re resigned. And the Lakers are kind of in position to defend their title. Um, but this side of the conversation we want to have is about um, LeBron James and how he's changing the dynamic from player to front office to agent. So his agent, um, Rich Paul, who is a childhood friend and a business partner and a multi-million dollar mogul, um, has been uh, doing his thing in the industry outside of just being attached to LeBron. He's signing the top talent, um, he's maneuvering in a way that's making the old guard of the NBA very upset, which is typically old and white. Um, he's young and black and, and handsome and on fire, and they're doing everything they want to do, and it's pissing people off. 
Um, let's talk about how LeBron James is not only taking the basketball as he's compared to Mike all the time, but how he's handling his business uh, more like magic. So we can throw it out for a couple minutes and then we'd be down with it. Um, I'm going to be completely honest and say that I don't really know basketball like that. But what I do appreciate about LeBron is that instead of him saying the inaugural line, I'm the businessman, he is the businessman, like to take everything. And when I say vertical integration has taken, he's taking that to a new mm-hmm. level. And it's like merch, education, um, real estate development. Um, he's even started to invest in like uh, recruitment and talent development for individuals. So after he transitions out of the NBA, he can pretty much staff whatever organization he wants to. So I respect that because when Magic came out of the game, we had Magic Theaters, um, which was able to fund his philanthropic work in the city. So I respect LeBron for that. Um, on top of the fact that he's done so with like such decorum, such class, which is something like the NBA is in many cases used as a dog and pony show. Like I really appreciate how he's been able to come in as a child because he was a baby when he started and grow into this amazing literal, like just a mogul for young black people, like from everything from basketball to business. I I truly love to see his come up. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, he's changed. He, he's changed the game. Um, I think for players, he's empowered players in a way that they've never been empowered before. Um, and probably players in other leagues kind of envy how NBA, NBA players, how, how much, um, uh, how they can just move around, but how, how much uh, influence they have. I, I was looking at how Harden didn't show up, and they said he's just not showing up at this point, and he just may not be ready to go to work yet. And that, you know, they had a, a weird season in the, and without a summer. So, um, but I, for, for me, um, I was looking at his recent contract of like $85 million for two years, and I was talking to my friend, and, and uh, we were saying, like, well, we know he hasn't been stupid with his money probably since he's got to the NBA. Like, for, for over 15 years, he's been making good moves. Um, he's, he, he's kept his, his, you know, he stayed, stayed out of any type of drama or anything like that. Uh, but he's empowered NBA players from when he decided to leave Cleveland and how he decided to leave Cleveland. Um, and I remember now you see all three of the, uh, the Ball brothers in the NBA now. And I remember when their dad was renting and raving a few years ago, and I was like, it would be not – and they were trying to start their own shoe company, right? And I was like, that would not be possible without LeBron James, being able to empower other um, just, just, just players to kind of buck the system, whatever that system is. So uh, um, he's incredible. I agree. What I, what I love about this topic, I think the importance of this topic is looking at economic empowerment, economic influence on these larger scales, right? So Rich is right. I think it started with him leaving Cleveland and the uproar. And, and I think that's probably why people still hate on him now is because he made that decision, at especially taking, taking his own economic power, making his own decision the fallout, y'all can remember them burning up his jersey at the time and all that type of stuff. And and you have, and you know, the, the athlete kind of had more respect when you stayed with that team, right? So NJ was with the Bulls, uh, Magic was with, was with the Lakers, and here he is, I'm leaving, right? Um, and, the, and the economic power that followed him with that and, and blowing up the system. And that's what I think he's doing right now and why people are so frustrated with him and, and you know, his, his cadre of friends who he also brought up with him. So I'm not a millionaire. I think Jay-Z says it best. Like, your your success is measured by the people that are successful around you, right? And so this is why I love the model that LeBron is presenting to everybody else to follow, right? Like, we're, we're going to educate everybody. We're going to get everybody a piece of the pie. Um, and that is turning the league on its head. And that's what I love about what, what he's doing right now. I want to add one more thing. You just reminded me. Um, it's like that. I think there was a quote. Somebody said, shut up and dribble. I don't know if that really happened or not, but I know yeah, it was going around. Yep. And we can think back to like March or April or, you know, when the NBA was was getting ready to start back and we had all the civil unrest or whatever they want to call it. When we were, you know, making people hear us, 
And um, if you think about it, they were to say, shut up and dribble. He basically said, like, no, I'll stop the whole game, and you're going to listen. And when we're ready, we'll start playing basketball again. And we'll give it to you to allow you to, to, to watch basketball. So, um, yeah, he's a, a powerful person and, and a great example for people, young people, for everybody, really. Absolutely. Um, and I'll let you have a final word there. So, uh, once again, this is the Next Narrative Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, you, can, you can find us on all of your uh, streaming podcasts, places that you find them. Um, and I'll clear this part up when I do the, when I do the post-production. Um, but I want to thank everybody for their time. There, there's very few times that I'm conversing with people that really make me question my position or, 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 or push my thoughts forward. And this group does it, and that's why I keep coming to the table. Um, I just love to share thoughts with you guys, and uh, it's an honor for me to be here with you guys. Um, I'm a, I, I'll leave you guys one final word, and then we'll wrap it up, and we're good. Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. So I, 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 I sent some money down there. I'm, I'm probably going to send a little bit more money down there, um, not for the Jeezy and Gucci battle, other, uh, <laughs> although y'all earned that too, but I'm going to send some money down um, for those campaigns because uh, we really are leaning on y'all right now. New revolutionary leadership, please get involved in your local elections. August 3rd, 2021, be prepared, come to the polls, and state your position if you need to. I'm with, I'm with Rich on this, George. The, the world is watching. And you know me, I got two of them. One, let's get this money and make a difference. Um, and then ode to my uh, old head. Thanks for coming out. God bless and good night. You can find the Detroit Next Narrative podcast on Apple or Spotify. And you can follow us on Instagram at Next Narrative 313.